This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hi, it is me, myself, Cindy Adams, the same Cindy Adams who harangues you in my column Monday through Thursday, four times a week, every week in the New York Post. You're stuck with me, so you might as well pay attention, because despite international, worldly, global efforts to get rid of me, I'm still here. So, forget it. I'm going on. I interview celebrities wall-to-wall. It's my job. If there is something for them to promote, they come by the yard. But there are so many oddities that happen when you interview these high-class, high-powered, big names. Underneath, they're the same little scared nobodies as the rest of us. They probably even cheat at Monopoly or Scrabble. Back when I was with the first lady then of the Philippines, Imelda Marcos, she was here in New York. She had a townhouse in the East 60s, and she wanted to have a gala, but she didn't have a chef here. So she did was invite everybody and then come to me and say, where can I get Asian food? So I said, well, I know a couple of chefs who can do Asian oriental kind of food. So what she did was serve 200 people at a gala magnificent dinner. And she said it came as a result of the kindness of His Majesty, the King of Jordan. Yeah, the King of Jordan was some guy in Third Avenue who had a restaurant who I knew. That was the king of Jordan's menu. Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn was well known to never pay any bills. He let them pile up. He never had cash on him. People paid for what he wanted. One day, he came to our home. We had some oriental antiques because I lived in the Far East for many years. And he said, where can I have some of these objects? They're beautiful. So we took him to our dealer. That is, my husband took him to the dealer. I said, I think that's a bad move. He doesn't pay his bills. So Joey Adams, my husband, said, oh, he's our friend. He'll pay his bills. Okay. Roy Cohn picked out three Objects, objets d'art. They were beautiful. This was $75,000. All of them were placed in his living room. After six months, the dealer called me and he said, you know, your friend has never paid for the objects. I said, don't worry about it. I will never let a friend of mine be harmed so I took my car and a driver, and we went to his home, which was in the East 60s, a townhouse. I rang the bell. His housekeeper was there and knew me very, very, very well. I was always at Roy Cohn's house. So her Elvira was her name. So she said, what can I do for you? I said, there are some objects that I need. She says, go help yourself. So my driver and I went into the living room. We took three objects back. They were in the $75,000 range. We just took them out, put them in the car, and brought them back to the dealer. That very night, I am having dinner with Roy Cohn because we were doing a story. And we went to a restaurant on the east side. And it's the first time I'd ever heard this phrase used. I knew about the phrase, but I'd never heard anybody use it. He said to the maitre d', the check is in the mail. We sat down, we had dinner. It was the night I took the objects back. He never, ever mentioned it, ever. Till the day he died, he never, ever brought up the subject. Back a long time ago, I'm thinking of the old days for some reason, Remember a man called Jackie Gleason? Jackie Gleason lived above us on Fifth Avenue. 
He had the penthouse. We were then on the tenth floor. Jackie Gleason, who made nothing but hundreds of thousands of dollars, never had any money. He was always broke. So one day the doorbell rang. I answered it. Gleason was at the door. And he said, Listen, where's your husband? I need to borrow some money. So I called Joey and I said, Jackie Gleason's in front of the door. He needs some money. Those were the days when we weren't having credit cards as easily. And the guys used to carry money in a roll. So Joey peeled off $3,000 and he gave it to Jackie Gleason. That night, we were having dinner at a restaurant and Jackie Gleason spent those $3,000 on a three-piece orchestra to come in and serenade us. That's what happened to the money he borrowed from Joey. He gave it to three musicians. Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein was producing a musical on Broadway. I said to him, Harvey, it's lousy. It's never going to work. I was there with the Patakis. He was Governor Pataki at the time and his wife. And Harvey said to me, you don't know anything. What do you know? You don't know a thing. And I said, okay, Harvey, I'll tell you what I don't know. I will bet you $10,000 that this play, this musical, doesn't last 20 minutes. He said, you don't know anything, and I'll take the bet. And I said, Harvey, whether I have the 10000 or not, if I make a bet, I pay a bet. I will expect you to do the same. Okay, fade in, fade out, and understand the governor was a witness to this. The musical lasted about 20 minutes. It crashed. It was awful. It got terrible reviews, and it folded in about two weeks. I didn't hear from Harvey. So I sent word through a friend, Harvey, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will write in the column once a week that you're a welcher and you don't pay your $10,000. Next day, Harvey Weinstein sent me a check for $10,000. I didn't keep it. I gave it to the ASPCA. That's my Harvey Weinstein story. Mayor de Blasio comes over to my home one day, and... He's playing with my little Yorkie, my Yorkshire Terrier. And the dog is on his lap, and he's hugging the dog. And I said, you know something, Bill? You're not wildly, insanely loved. Every, every pre- president who's ever had a, 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 a conversation with the press, and it's being televised, always has a little dog at his feet or on his lap. It makes him seem more lovable and approachable. Why don't you get a dog? And I said, knowing Mayor de Blasio was not necessarily a heavy spender, I said, since I love Yorkies and I love my breeder, I will buy and pay for your Yorkshire Terrier. He said, great, great, great idea. I'll call you in 20 minutes after I get home. He left. 20 minutes later, he called me and he said, can't do it. I said, why not? He said, my wife doesn't want it. I said to him, honey, you were going to go on television and say to the world, this is my new Yorkie. He says, yeah, I know, but my wife doesn't want it. And so we never got it for him. Jesse Eisenberg. He wears clothes from his movies. He doesn't buy suits. Whatever he has from his last role, he wears. Jolie Gabor, the mother of the Gabors. I did their life story. I might also add the book did not sell at all. I was probably the only buyer of this book. But whatever it is, I learned that they were Jewish. And Jolie said, Darling, you don't say Jewish. What you do is, in the book, you make us Catholics. So in the book, they became 
Catholics. Jaja, my husband Joey Adams, the comedian, worked with Jaja six months at a time, six weeks at a time in Las Vegas. She came out every night with a rose in her hand because she was having an affair with the head waiter. One day she came out without the rose. And we said, Jaja, what happened to the rose? She says, the head waiter, he had, I don't mind sleeping with him. He is very good, darling. But now he wants to be seen with me in public. A head waiter. So that was the end of their relationship. Sinatra. When I first met Sinatra, my husband was president of all the actors, AGVA, American Guild of Variety Artists. So he knew everyone, had every phone number, every address. And when we were having dinner with Sinatra, he asked me, I was just a teenager at the time, how do you get through the night? What's difficult with getting through the night? I go to sleep, I get through the night. I said, well, Frank, what gets you through the night? He says, a couple of shots of Jack Daniels. That's what I need. So I take care of all the aggravations, the worries, and the fears. Jerry Lewis. He would never wear the same pair of socks twice. Why? I have no idea. But that's what he told me. There was the book and the movie Green Berets. It was written by Robin Moore. He wrote his book in the nude. Why? I don't know. But he told me, I have paper wrapped up over my head like, like it's an awning, and I keep rolling it, and so it never stops. And if I get an itch, I scratch myself and I scratch out the whole chapter, but what I need is to write freely, have no encumbrance, and he wrote in the nude. Greg Kelly, who's a big stanchion here, who's a big member of WABC, one day, I went to visit him, and he was then with Rosanna Scotto on Fox TV's Good Day New York. It was an early morning show, and it's still on. And I had my dog with him because I was then giving a blessing of the animals every Christmas. The cardinal would come and bless them. Then I had a rabbi for the Jewish dogs. And so every year... I came with to Rosanna Scotto and Greg Kelly to do Good Day New York. Now, with me was my little Yorkie. In those days, his name was Jazzy. He was a boy dog. And if you looked at him, you could see he was a boy dog. And Greg Kelly, on television, to thousands of people, said to me, What is he? Is he a boy or a girl? And I thought, you know, Greg, I don't know about your sex life, but you can tell this is a boy dog. Elaine Stritch is no longer with us, but Elaine Stritch, who lived in the hotel, used to take food from when you would invite her to dinner. One night we had dinner, and it was at the Le Cirque, which was a very elegant restaurant in those days. And her salad had dressing. And the salad was then runny and wet. And from her bag, she took a plastic, a plastic, what do you call the bags that are plastic? I can't think of the name of it, but what? it's a plastic bag. And she schlepped the salad, wet, dripping, into the plastic bag. She sealed the bag, put it in her own handbag, and took it upstairs to the hotel to have dinner. Listen, some of us, some of us who are on the other side, on the professional gossip columnist side, we've also had our problems. Governor George Pataki, when he was governor, 
had a dinner in my honor, and there were sixteen people at the table, and it was a gigantic table and a white, glorious tablecloth. And he placed in front of me a bottle of red wine, and with one great sweep of my hand, I knocked the whole bottle of red wine over. It went over the entire white tablecloth. It went over my white suit. It went over Governor George Pataki. And Mrs. Pataki, Libby, had to give me one of her wardrobe pieces to go home because I was soaking wet and it was all red. And Libby Pataki was much taller than I was and the outfit didn't fit. All of us have had our have had our difficulties. Listen, I am where I am, and I'm grateful for everything that I have. But I didn't even have a high school diploma. I was not allowed to go to college. That was because I went to school where they had at that time certain classes for women and certain classes for men. The men were in were, were making things, carving things. The women were sewing or cooking. My job was to make a graduation dress. I can't sew. I couldn't follow a pattern. The white lawn dress, this was a summertime graduation, was by now wrinkled, black, dirty. It had been on the floor. I didn't have the ability to make this dress from from a pattern. So my mother took me to a dressmaker to have it sewn up. And then we went to school to show the dress. And the principal said, if you don't make your own dress, you don't graduate. So I didn't make my own dress. My mother said she is never going to have to sew, and she took me out. And so I am here, living proof that you can make it without a high school diploma. Right after this, I was invited by Nehru to come and do a story on me, because without my high school diploma, I then became a writer, a journalist, and because of connections, I was invited by Nehru. And Nehru had someone from the, the the presidential library who was also there as a guest. And this man from the presidential library, thinking I was a person, which I wasn't, he said, And ma'am, and at what university did you attend? And I said, Well, honey, I never attended one because they wouldn't let me graduate high school. Well, he looked at me like I was an insect. And then we did my interview with Nehru, who on the way out pinched me in my behind. So it doesn't pay to have a high school diploma. Look what happened to me. I've been on TV when a contact lens rolled down my face. I have had my housekeeper, Nazaline, who's been with me 25 years. Not long ago, we received a big shipment of orchids. I was so grateful because I'd not been feeling well. And the orchids looked so beautiful, but they were red. I'd never seen red orchids. So she put them in the living room, and she watered them faithfully every day. Four months later, I noticed that no leaves had fallen off. The orchids were felt they were made of material, and my housekeeper, Nazaline, who was born in Guyana, had been faithfully watering them. Where did I come from? Oh, I had 50 beauty titles, including, you ready, Miss Bagel. They gave me a crown of shellacked bagels. I don't have that any longer, but I do have the photograph. 
Listen, what can I tell you? I've been through all of it. Judge Judy, who's been a friend of mine for years, sent me, took care of me when things were not good. She sat and watched at a hospital when they were afraid I was having an appendix problem. I wanted to thank her. So I went into a jeweler and I ordered some coral for her. This was a while back before coral became incredibly expensive. And I ordered a coral necklace for her. Later, I got the bill. It was on my credit card. I thought it was 55. I thought it's 5,500. It wasn't. It was $55,000. The coral necklace. I nearly fainted. I called Judy and I said, send the necklace back. And she did. And she had already ordered earrings and paid for them to go with it. She now still has the earrings. She does not have the necklace. Listen, I have written a column on the back of an elephant. I have washed from a pith helmet in Surabaya. I have been in, Suha in the Sahara, where I have said I need to send out a telegram urgently. Will this telegram go out today? She said, oh, yes, we send out our telegrams once a week. I have taught English in Laos. I was there in Vientiane when everybody, American and English, was removed. I was not removed. We were there for the president. I was teaching English to a small group of ladies, little girls, and I gave them a sentence, and I said, I want a dress exactly like this. Exactly like this. That's the time if we say, I want you to meet me exactly at eight o'clock. Exactly. Does that understand? Do you understand that? And they said, oh, yes, we understand that. We want a dress exactly like yours. It has nothing to do with the time. I've written a column on the back of elephants. I went to New Jersey to do a story on prisons. I came out. I had lost my hubcaps. Listen, I could go on and drone on endlessly. I have paid my dues, and that's why I'm here. And now I'm about to give you a station break, and I'll be right back after this. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. I'm going to talk with Stuart Pierce. His book is published by Skyhorse. The title was Diana, the Voice of Change. His next, coming out shortly, is Diana, Wish You Were Here. Stuart Pierce, with whom we now speak, is in London. He's called the Master of Voice. He's coached names from Downton Abbey's Hugh Bonneville to Eddie Redmayne. He's coached politicians from Margaret Thatcher to Benazir Bhutto and Princess Diana. He's been called Diana's confidant and friend. Listen, Stuart, why in mm -hmm. the first place did she need you? Because she watched herself on the BBC interview with Martin Bashir that was filmed for Panorama, although she was very pleased with her bid for freedom in terms of what she said, she wasn't very pleased with the way that she appeared. Um, she felt herself to be submissive and that her voice wasn't strong enough. In other words, the power that she was beginning to feel within herself as she freed herself wasn't fully equated within the way that her voice functioned. Well, one would not believe that someone who is a Brit from a classy family, from well-educated people, would require something like that. Well, yes, I mean, of course, it wasn't to do necessarily with a lack of clarity in speech. She spoke very clearly, but she didn't feel a center to her voice. She didn't feel a power to her voice. 
And of course, as we both know, that the breath is the thing, is the motivating force that positions our voices. And she felt very weak in her breath, which was constantly creating tension. And she wanted to move into a state of feeling more empowered and more relaxed. I know that you're called the master of speech, as I said in the, in the master, introduction. Master of voice, yeah. Yes, all the people that you have, you have helped. How did she know you? I was recommended to Diana. Uh, I was recommended to Diana in the early 90s by a very dear friend of hers who was a leading restaurateur here in the city of London and had been a great patroness of mine, had introduced me to some very extraordinary people whom I'd worked with. Um, and uh, to be honest, I was uh, slightly, I'm very honored to be asked, but ex- very baffled because at that time, Diana, as we know, was surrounded by a circus of paparazzi. And so many of the people that she'd worked with as therapists, as healers, as psycho, psycho, um, psychoanalysts, had taken her, their story to the national papers. And therefore, she was scarred by a lot of betrayal. So when the uh, when I was asked again in '95, I said, "Well, why don't we why don't we meet? Why don't we talk about it?" And so I met Diana with the person that I've just been speaking about, the restaurateur called Mara Burney, and immediately was compelled to offer my services to Diana. I mean, I hesitate to say that I was extremely offered by the um, by the opportunity that was being initiated, but at the same time, I didn't see how I could serve the complexity of what her role was all about until I met the individual herself. I know that you, I know, of course, that you have had a special odd interview with a French cleric who, that night she died, sat with her dead body six hours. I know the story, but you must explain it to me. How did that happen? It was very extraordinary that uh, through a colleague of mine, I was introduced to the idea of this gentleman whom I'd never heard of. I wondered, of course, who had spent um, the night with with Diana between her arrival at the hotel, uh, the hospital rather, and then the eventual arrival of Prince Charles when her body was wrapped in the royal ensign and taken back to the UK. And so when I was introduced to the idea of this gentleman, this wonderful Roman Catholic priest in Paris, I was also somewhat surprised because, after all, she was not a Roman Catholic person. She was um, a Church of England person. Yes. So apparently the story goes that the the British ambassador in Paris could not find an Anglican priest, so automatically called this this certain Roman Catholic priest who had allegiance to the hospital where Diana's body was taken uh, as a chaplain. But he wasn't told who it was. He was just asked at 2.30 in one morning, the morning of August the 31st, 1997, if he would actually arrive at the hospital, which he did, and met, of course, in great surprise, the fact that he was going to be giving the last rites to Diana, Princess of Wales. Well, of course, I have I have met her, and I will talk about that in a moment. But what was she like with you in her off hours? Was she like any other ordinary person? She was extraordinary. I mean, firstly, as you well know, there was her captivating beauty, which was to do not just simply by the way that she looked, but also to do with this extraordinary authenticity, immediacy, kindness and charm. Yeah. Uh, and very, very funny, uh, extremely personable, and one of the most generous people that I've ever met. I mean, she was, in short, enchanting. I absolutely adored her. She was so easy to work with and so appreciative of everything that took place between us. But you both went uh, to, a, to a... Did you not go to a movie together in, in one day, yes. one night? There were on one or two occasions, I mean, Diana loved to be ordinary. So, for example, often when she would arrive at my studio for work, she would say, can I, can I do some washing up? So I would actually leave crockery in the kitchen for her to wash up so that she could just simply feel very ordinary and grounded. I think on one occasion she said to me, you always wear such beautiful shirts. Can I iron your shirts? Well, I said, oh, no, God. no, oh, I, I, Lord, I yeah. leave some china wear for you to wash up, <laughs> my darling, but I don't think my shirts are appropriate. <laughs> And so we, we became very familiar on that level. I mean, she, I saw her almost 
once or twice a week for nearly two years, except, of course, when she was away on state occasions or, you know, away on vacations or whatever. And so on one particular occasion, she called me because all of our connection was was created through cellular telephones. And she called me and said, I want to go to the movies. Let's go to the movies. What should we see? And I said, what? I, I, I don't think I can do this. I mean, you'll be surrounded by security. No, I'm going to be incognito. Meet me at the end of the avenue leading to Kensington Palace at 7 o'clock, and we'll go and see Jerry Maguire. And so oh, I, remember <laughs> I arrived yes. at the, the end of the avenue that leads to Kensington Palace and noticed a you know, fairly tall, rather beautiful um, dark, dark wigged person with a trench coat and a pair of sunglasses, and I thought that they were Russian, possibly from a Russian, the Russian embassy, which is also on the avenue that leads towards Kensington Palace. And uh, she lifted her sunglasses, and there was Diana. And so we walked along the main road, which is known as Kensington High Street, yeah. towards the movie theatre and um, giggled all the way. It was quite extraordinary. Nobody knew who she was, which was unusual, because after all, she was the most photographed woman in recorded history. Who paid for the movie? I'm sorry? Who paid for the movie? Oh, I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did, yes. I mean, I, I did all the arranging. You know, okay, I, okay. I seem to remember um, purchasing water. Neither of us wanted Coca-Cola. And she wanted some popcorn. So I bought popcorn. I mean, I got the tickets and so forth and so forth. Yeah. It was all as though, as though we were on a date, you know. So we were arm in, she was arm in my arm. And um, we were constantly wearing sunglasses. Tell us, tell us about that famous svelte, tight-fitting revenge dress. How did that come about and why? It's a famous dress. It was a very famous dress, yes. That It had been announced via Prince Charles channels that he um, had become very candid about his um, infidelity. And it just so happened that Diana was invited to a reception at the Serpentine Gallery. This, I, I believe, was the late summer of 94. And she came for a session with me beforehand. And prior to her session with me, she she was a very sportive lady. So she regularly had massage, reflexology, facials. And on this particular occasion, had had a colonic irrigation at the famous Hay Hay. Uh, Hale Clinic in London. A colonic irrigation. So she arrived for her session with me post-colonic. A colonic <laughs> irrigation before she colonic came. Colonic irrigation, okay. exactly. Is there another phrase uh, for well, that you know, that's it, not it so was fancy? Her way of cleaning out. Okay. The the mess that had been created within her intestines. Uh, yes, I, okay, I got it. Bulimia. I got it. Okay. What's this yeah. got to do with the stupid tight-fitting revenge dress? Okay. <laughs> and so the point was that as she was leaving me to jump into her car to drive back to Kensington Palace for hair, makeup, and the revenge dress, she turned to me and said, isn't it wonderful? Because nobody's going to know I've had a colonic. <laughs> and, and left to put on this extraordinary, very revealing, low decolletage short dress who looked absolutely extraordinary. And uh, since that occasion, it wasn't Diana that created the term revenge, but the, per the press called it the revenge dress because she looked outstandingly stunning. Well, did she really love Charles? We know about Charles and his hope to be Tampax with Camilla, this charmer yeah. that he is now going to make a queen a little bit. What, did she really love him? Yes, she did. How do you know? End. How do you know? How do you know, Stuart? Well, we were very intimate, and so she would often appear for consultation with me in a very emotional state. And so, obviously, being an empath myself, I would ask, what, what is the issue? Because it seems that we can't get on with the process of what we had itemized to work through. And so she would open her heart and tell me all the things that were taking place in, in strictest confidence, of course. Our relationship was completely secret, completely confidential. And on one of those occasions, on a number of those occasions, she kept repeating that I'm still in love with Charles. What am I going to do about this? How did she come to you? Did, 
did she come by herself? Did she drive to... Always, because remember, this time she had actually shifted the position that she held for many years, where she had personal protection officers. And when she became Diana, Princess of Wales, the personal protection officers fell away. So she was completely by herself. Occasionally associated with Paul Burrell, and occasionally with a member of her administration. But most of the time, she appeared by herself. I mean, little do we know that, you know, when she, when she was in, uh, at home in London, that she often appeared at 8 o'clock in the evening at one of London's leading hospitals, would park her car outside, run in and say to reception, is there anybody that I can sit with, completely by herself? Ah, uh, um. What, uh, I'm I'm not one to miss a chance to pee on Prince Harry. Do you know anything about him and his me 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 Megan at all? Did she ever say anything? Did Diana speak about Harry? Yes. Well, I mean, she spoke copiously about her two boys, yes. I mean, she was constantly wishing to protect them from any harm, whether it be, um, you know, the insidious or vitriolic quality of press intervention with the paparazzi or indeed protecting them within the confine of the royal family. So I know that they were very much negotiated when she discussed her divorce terms. Oh, she was devoted to the two boys. And um, I feel that we see her presence in them constantly today, 24 years after her, her, her demise. And, uh, you know, absolutely devoted, you know, and particularly Harry. I feel Harry has an impetuosity which was very similar to his mother. Impetuosity is a nice word. Okay, mm -hmm. let me go further. What about her fears? We felt, I mean, I felt that she had fears about something that would happen to her. Am I correct? Yes, and many people have alluded to these fears and have denounced them as being pure paranoia. But, you know, I was aware of some very unusual things taking place. I mean, for example, I remember one afternoon her arriving and her brakes had failed as she tried to park her car. I always made sure that there was a very easy access point for her to park the car um, in, the, in, in the street of London where I lived so that she could then run into my studio. Um, and, and I remember calling car mechanics who came around and said, this is very unusual. The, the, the brake fluid seemed to, seems to have congealed, so the brakes are no longer working. That happened on one occasion. Often she would arrive where she felt that she was being followed by men in black cars, this is the way that she described it. So she was very fearful of uh, a number of major things that were going on. Her cell phone was constantly being mislaid. I know Paul Burrell was often given the commission of going off and getting another cell phone for her. You know, strange things happened. Um, I kept a number of memorabilia that she had given me because she was a fond letter writer or card sender. And they were, you know, as we see through all of the artifacts that have been collated since her demise, they're very cherished items where she pours her heart out in thanks, in, um, in you know, protestation of wonder and in, in great love. And I had a series of these letters that she'd written in a briefcase and in an attache case at the back of my car. And I remember parking it. This was a week after her death parking it right outside the house where I lived and ran inside. And when I came out, the briefcase had been stolen. Whoa. But there was nobody in sight. And my, you know, my journey into my, my house, my apartment, was, it probably took me about a half a minute, you know, 60, maybe a minute. Um, and strange things took place, you know. Why now, a quarter of a century later, Stuart, are you doing another book? about Diana. This is a long time later. Yeah. Well, it's largely to do with the fact that so many of my female actor clients who are of some, you know, some notoriety um, have been very vocal about trying to find parity or equity in their status within Hollywood and elsewhere. 
and how you know so often the men are ruling rather than giving equal equal parity to the women and particularly of course we know as, as a result of hashtag me too there has been a tremendous exposure over the substance of Harvey Weinstein and a number yeah, of other significant yeah. individuals yeah. and uh, so many many of these wonderful people spoke to me and I encouraged them and indeed took part in one famous New York Times article some years ago and so I started writing the book about four years ago and uh, published it um, at the beginning of last year and of course it was reprinted for the for August of this year and as a result of the book and its emancipatory value I've been approached by a leading New York publisher who wished to commission the writing of a second book about Diana which will be dedicated purely to her legacy don't you think a bit it has to do with our coming out of CV and starting to dress again, and they are resurrecting her styles and looks. I think that's happening, too. And now on Broadway, we're getting a musical about her. Does this not seem possible that she's being resurrected again emotionally? It's very extraordinary, isn't it, Cindy? It's very, yeah. very extraordinary. Yes. I know that Anna Winter had dedicated a number of major pages within Vogue around July of this year, which of course celebrated, would have celebrated Diana's 60th birthday. And of course, we know The Crown featured her very largely, which yes. has become an award-winning series yes. on Netflix. And now, as you say, we have um, both Diana the Musical and the film Spencer. Yes. So it seems that her spirit is wishing to talk to us in some way about furthering the verities and the virtues that she espoused so that they can become um, more attain obtainable in the world, particularly to emancipate the ladies of the world. What does the palace think of you? Well, I have very little to do with the hierarchy at the palace. Uh, my father worked in royal service and unfortunately died many, many years ago. And so my connection, my overt connection uh, was, was created or rather was, was finalized. Um, so I, I have no connection with Buckingham Palace at this time. Uh, it was very extraordinary that in 1982, I was invited to a garden party. I think that was the last garden party I went to. And, of course, met the young Princess Diana. Um, it was, of course, it was then, what, 12, 13 years later that I actually worked with her. But otherwise, I have no overt connection with BP. What memorabilia have you kept from her? Well, it was most of it was stolen. I mean, I have photographs that were given to me post her death because it became known that the briefcase full of her letters had been stolen. And so a number of people who were friends or associates of Diana helped me remember her by providing me photographs. So I have two very stunning photographs. Unfortunately, they're not signed, but they are of the Mighty One. Um, and so I have the iridescence of her beauty and her charm with me all the time. I remember, I, I met her on three occasions. I remember once in Brooklyn, she was uh, supposed to be honored by the Welsh Ballet or some such, and they had a special John, a toilet reserved just for the princess. And I thought, my, you know, you have your own throne. That's really, that's really something. But she was she was very charming, and I don't know whether she used the John or not, but they had that set aside for her. That's really class, isn't it, when you have your own throne? Isn't it just, yes. And of course, as we know, she was so wonderfully praised and loved in the United States of America. And your, your wonderful city, New York City, was her bliss city. Well, we, we, un we sort of understood her. We did sort of understand her. When she communicated... Was it all was it by phone? Did you call her? Were you able to call her? Did she always call you? How did it work? It was mostly her. You know, the understanding was that uh, we would have a confidential relationship, that whenever she needed me, she would call me via cell phone because cell phones were the latest gimmick at that time in 1995. And um, they were very large, I seem to remember. 
And so she would always contact me. I mean, on one or two occasions, I would text her initially, and then we would speak just in case she was engaged in an official engagement. Um, But most of the time, it was me waiting to hear from her. And I... Literally, as a result of our relationship, I allowed myself to be at her disposal. You mean if you had an appointment, you would cancel the appointment if she wanted to see I would you. always make space for her, yes. And obviously, I was never inappropriate with some of my other rather wonderful, you know, <laughs> um, nation-famous nation clients. Well, some of um, your nation-famous clients, which is not well, a phrase I would use easily. Well, tell us, tell us some of the your... Other people that I work with. Tell us some of your nation-famous clients. I know Hugh Bonneville. I know that. And who, 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 <laughs> the, who else? The, the Tell actors, me. wonderful actors like Mark Rylance, whom I was working with particularly at that time, who has now been knighted, Sir Mark Rylance. Mark was, uh, was invited to be the first artistic director of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre which was the reconstruction of the globe that would have stood originally in 1597 on the south bank of River Thames. And um, Mark asked me, that's where I get the title from, Mark asked me if I would become his master of voice, which I did from the inception of the project, which was really in 96. So it was still while Diana was alive, all the way through to 2013, when, uh, 2012 rather, when I eventually resigned and went on to other things. I know um, that you Hugh did... Hugh Bonville, Vanessa Redgrave, you know, names like this. I know that you did... Well, I think I know you did, Eddie Redmayne, and you did you did politicians. Did you not do Margaret Thatcher and Benazir Bhutto? Am I right? Yes, wrong? I did, and Mo okay. Molum, yes. I mean, Margaret was my first great... That was the beginning, because I was an actor during the 70s, and, of course, Margaret gained administration in 79, And in 1980, I was asked to be her voice coach, which, of course, I stepped into with great glee. Margaret was absolutely charming, a woman of immense grace and kindness. Uh, Of course, now we look through the lens of history and we see that perhaps her reputation changed and she became very, very much the Iron Lady. But when I first met her, she was very eager to find a voice which was much less that sort of upper middle class sound and to find weight and position so that her authority and gravitas would be appreciated in the commons and elsewhere. So, yes, it was like a baptism by fire, I suppose you could say, Um, and went on to work with Benazir, who was then the president of Pakistan, a very remarkable lady who unfortunately um, was assassinated, as we know. Uh, and Momolam. Momolam was the, the parliamentarian that created the peace talks in Northern Ireland and had the British government and the Sinn Féin speak in open, uh, open debate and through conciliatory measure. She was very extraordinary. Listen, I thank you very, very much for talking with me. I've appreciated. When are you coming to the colonies? I shall be in New York City from November the 10th and would love to meet up. It would be wonderful. What are you coming here for? for What are you coming here for? I'm coming to meet press and book signings, Cindy. Okay, okay, okay. High tea, sweetheart. We shall have high tea, okay? Lovely. Bless you. Thank you. I love to speak (laughs) to you. Much love. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you. Bye, honey. Bye-bye. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Enough already with the elections. We're still arguing about the election we just had. And now we're about to start arguing about a new election for mayor. I sort of looked about all of the elections we've had. For instance, Bill Clinton, in June of 1996, he said... We have to take seriously the problem of older men who prey on underage women because, if we're not careful, there are consequences to decisions. Really? That was a quote of his. President George Bush, when I need a little advice about Saddam Hussein, I turn to country music. Now, what the hell that means, I don't know, but this is his exact quote. President Ronald Reagan. 
Gerald Gerald Ford was a communist. He, he meant congressman. President Barack Obama, in a direct quote, which I have read my very own self, quote, don't underestimate Joe Biden's ability to F things up. And he used the whole word F. Non-President Joe Biden in 2012, the president has a big stick. What that means, I don't know. I'm just telling you his quote. President Gerald Ford, we have a strong president in the White House. We have a strong Congress in the legislative branch. We have a strong Supreme Court supposedly heading the judiciary system. Vice President Al Gore when he was being televised in Jefferson's Monticello home, and he was referring to the busts that were on stands of Jefferson, Washington, Franklin, and the Marquis de Lafayette. He then said to the camera, Who are these guys? Presidential candidate Ted Kennedy, quote, I favor access to discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Where he said this, to who, what, and why, this I don't know. This is not my problem. I am just giving you the exact quotes. President Jimmy Carter, on why he talks to dictators, Direct quote. These little guys who might be making atomic weapons or are guilty of some human rights violations are really just looking for someone to listen to their problems. End of quote. Also, maybe end of Jimmy Carter? Presidential candidate Bob Dole asked, will he root for the American League or National League in that year's All-Star Game? Answered, well, probably. And that's about all I wish to tell you at this juncture. This is now the end of my broadcast, and I am going to tell you I thank you for listening I do this broadcast every Sunday on WABC from 1 to 2 with my usual scintillating semi-brilliant interviews or talks or bits of information like New York, New York, we love this town. Where else can you find his and hers muggers? Only in New York, kids. Only in New York. Talk to you again next Sunday. Same time, same station. Bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.